It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. This week, we finally address Donald Trump's election as the next president of the United States. But I'm hoping to do this in an unusual way, given everything that's already been written and reported on this. I want to take a look at the value of news media companies if we've entered a world where mainstream media firms, I'm talking about the New York Times, the Washington Post, CBS, Disney's ABC, Fox, Time Warner, Comcast, NBC, whatever, uh, all of these companies, if they're all increasingly marginalized, their news divisions marginalized, because large numbers of theoretical consumers see them as slanted and biased and therefore not trustworthy, what happens to the news media industry? And with me today to discuss is media investment banker John Chachis, managing partner at Methuselah Advisors. He just advised Gannett on its failed bid to acquire Tronk and has worked with many of the largest traditional media companies over the years. He advised Clear Channel on its $19 billion take private in 2006 and more recently advised Journal Communications on its spin merger with EW Scripps and then Journal Media on its sale to Gannett just last year. And he's an expert on the world of media. John, welcome to Deal of the Week. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's get right into this. By the way, John and I were just on Bloomberg Television on Monday where we discussed a little bit of this, and you can find that interview online on Bloomberg.com. Uh, but I wanted to have him on the podcast to explore this in a little more detail. Are we past the point of no return with mainstream media news organizations where we operate in some sort of post-fact world and therefore news organizations no longer command respect and therefore lose value to the consumer and to advertisers? I don't think we're past the point of no return. I think we are at a very important inflection point, maybe that's the wrong term, but inflection point of how uh, news organizations are going to sustain and validate their historic role as the arbiters of truth. And maybe that's the big issue, which is the big change isn't that people don't want to watch them anymore. In fact, there are lots of people still watching the news. Um, I think this election cycle would tell us uh, a corollary to your question. We saw less deployment of spent purchased political advocacy advertising by candidacies. We saw a lot of it by third-party organizations trying to affect the outcome of the election. But in fact, candidacies, including the person who won, particularly the person, particularly who, the person who won, absolutely eschewed using that and said, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk to the voter through a different tool. So we saw that political advocacy ad spending went down and markedly so, and the winner didn't use it really. 
I think that's pretty interesting. And then you add on top of that the fact that people uh, increasingly are looking at the news, as you said, as jaundiced. And and it may be a moment where um, organizations are going to have to decide uh, how they're going to reestablish their bona fides with, uh, with the consuming audience. So what's the solution? Do you have an opinion here? How can we fix this as news people? Well... I watched yesterday. I've watched for the last couple of days, and I'm a big consumer of, of of news product, both because my business requires it, and I'm just interested in it. I don't think the current uh, tactic of attacking the president elect for his failure to be truthful is going to is going to work very much. And you've seen a lot of it in recent days because Even- people already know, for one, right? Or, or in other words, the people that already feel like. He's not being truthful. Already know that, and the people that feel like he is or don't care already. Don't that's right. Care. That's right. So what I think I think the tricky part of it is you've seen this poll, this this stratification in the consuming um, world of of people at each political extreme. This is the sort of real undercurrent that scares me. You had people in the election cycle who knew that Hillary Clinton was untruthful about her emails, meaningfully untruthful. The data kept bringing it out and out and out, and the whole narrative of why she used a device, why she created her own system outside the norms of the State Department – those voters who were supporters of Hillary Clinton did not care. They were not interested in hearing about that in any way, shape, or form. And it probably wouldn't have mattered whether it was Donald Trump, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, or Mitt Romney running against her. They had decided she was their candidate. The same is true of this of this of this group of folks on the far uh, other end of the spectrum who were Trump supporters. They wanted to tear down the house, burn down the system, and start over. And they didn't care. What video came out or what he said on that video? They were voting for him, full stop. And in the center, you had this kind of squishy piece of America that wasn't sure where they wanted to go, who were probably more guided by other exigencies and emergencies. So we've had this feed that's gone on to America's public with very defined points of view that has hardened everyone's point of view. And I'm not sure that it's that they don't care about the fact. I'm not sure they care about anything other than their fact. That's, to me, what's sort of coming out of this, is that the voter, it's very hard to change a voter's mind, even if you have good facts. They are really, uh, really in a trough that that is their specific circumstance. So, you know, the the tricky part is how far can the president-elect go utilizing a direct voice to the consumer either publishing YouTube videos or Twittering every day. And some of that is very fact-challenged, as I said the other day with you on television. I think the news organizations, the best way they're going to be able to combat this is a little bit like just putting the white hot truth on things, but doing it in a very un, um, unbiased way, just presenting the facts. Put them, on a, put them on a sheet up on the screen and say, I'm sorry, you know, we don't have any data that there were three million extra votes that voted against Mr. Trump that were that were uh, illegal voters on the rolls. In fact, the data suggests from the following sources that there may have been a few thousand, you know, in total across the entire country that actually voted who didn't show up. You know, I think things like that the news media can do to reestablish that we are, in fact, the uh, the source of verified fact. What Donald Trump has tapped into is a vein, certainly in rural America, that urban America has a vision of what policy should be. And it is proselytizing that vision both 
in video, on American news organizations, and in print. And therefore, it's not really credible anymore. That has taken a long time to develop, but it's developed to a pretty credible place. I want to talk about what this means for the value of news companies, uh, but first a quick word from our sponsor. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. We're back with John Chachas, managing partner at Methuselah Advisors, a boutique investment bank that works with many of the largest traditional media companies uh, in the country. Uh, so let's talk about this as an M&A podcast. Let's talk about what this may mean for the valuation of media companies that have substantial news divisions. How do you see a world where consumers maybe are pulling away from mainstream media, impacting the value of those companies? Well, uh, I don't think that it is a draconian value destruction that happens. In fact, I might even make the argument that Fox, by identifying the effectiveness of feeding a steady diet of red meat policy to a particular demo in America who wanted to see it, created a very powerful news organization. I think the question is- A news entertainment organization. A news entertainment organization. I think the question becomes one more of public policy is how good or bad is this for America and its democracy and how we function as a people. And the Communications Act dictates that people who are owners of licensed media assets are to operate in the public interest. They are subject to the Fairness Doctrine and a variety of other things about fair and equitable time and treatment of things. I don't think that, I think what it, what it may spell is the increased behavior of owners of media assets thinking less about being the, the, delivery, the delivery agent of truth and the news and delivering the eyeballs, which is how they get paid and how they get valued. And in a sense, what I worry about is that uh, we have an increasing number of what once were news organizations in the public interest, increasingly driven by their specific demo, which is not the center and purest form of news, but the form of news that attracts an audience which they can monetize. I would like to think that there is a world where a truly unbiased news organization can thrive uh, and sort of win back a lot of disaffected people that are that, that I think are craving for a simple source of news that they can trust. And I wonder if I'm living in a pipe dream or there <laughs> or there is a world where we can sort of reverse the cycle of what we have seen in this election. And that's why I started this by, are we past the point of no return here? Are we just going to live for the for the remainder of my lifetime in a world where, where the news media simply caters to their audience? Or is there a way to reverse the trend here where some organization can pop up, if it's Bloomberg or some, somewhere else, and actually sort of pull back people away from a world where they feel like the media is is simply biased and catering and that there is a true truth. You know, I I think that there is a way for news organizations to regain some ground in this arena. It probably comes at some financial cost that in the end the quest to be fair to the facts may cost you some eyeballs of the devoted audience you want. There's a great 
show that was only on the air for three seasons, uh, Newsroom. And I, I love, there's this one episode where the owner of it uh, says, I'm more, I'm more interested in putting out a news that I'm proud of than making the last nickel. I think it's going to come back to that question a little bit. Let's end this with, a, with, with turning back to M&A for a little bit more, um, since that is your full-time job. What's the next shoe to drop in media M&A in 2017? I think you're going to see two things that happen in 2017 and may spill over to 2018. One, the concentration of power among a very small handful of digital companies is going to become an issue, and the government's not going to know what to do about it. If you look at the sheer market share of search traffic that runs through the Google search index, it's got to be well over 80% of everything that happens in search. And the definition of control and power in a traditional sense because it's all diffuse. It's This is individuals that are all coming to this customer. But there is one person that controls search in, you know, really in the world, frankly, and certainly in the American market. I think that the regulators are going to start to struggle with what to do about the increased concentration of power among... We've the, seen it a little in the EU, which has cracked down on Google a little bit, but not really in the United States yet. And we don't... And I don't know that regulators really quite know how, because there are some real challenges to what concentrated power means. By the way, if you're expecting Google to buy Twitter, that would be an argument why they will not buy Twitter. That may be that, that, that's, that's right. I mean, and, and I think so we'll see um, we're going to see more intrusive regulation trying to figure those sorts of things out. I also think we may turn the corner where a couple of the larger legacy media companies um, are actually the way Time Warner was acquired by AOL instead of the question being who's going to buy Netflix or who's going to buy some of these interesting high growth new digital economy companies, we may see some of those new digital economy companies whose whose securities are trading at extraordinarily high valuations. We may see them use their currency to buy some of the, the, uh, the traditional legacy media companies that have massive but very mature cash flows, not growing as much, big market share, very profitable. Um, and nowhere to go because they're sort of their marketplace is kind of mature and there aren't a lot of regulatory moves they can make. I think we actually might see some activity where the digital guys start to step out a little bit and use their currencies to be the acquirers as opposed to the acquirees. Netflix would be sort of the king of that. Be world a great example, you, you know. I mean, or if you had, if HBO was separated from Time Warner in some manner, um, you know, it, it could become a different. There, there are a variety of these really interesting assets that could become um, the next generation of buyers as opposed to the target themselves. John Chach is managing director at Methuselah Advisors. A pleasure. Thank you, John. Thanks for, for having for, me. For doing part two with us. Uh, so that's it for this week's Deal of the Week. Remember, you can get all of our episodes on iTunes or Bloomberg.com or the Bloomberg Terminal or on SoundCloud or any app you use to listen to podcasts. And please rate and review the show uh, if you have a minute. And also follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949, where I will tweet you propaganda and fake news, and you will listen because you are following me already and therefore have curated your news to hear only what you want. See you next week. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.